Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to this week's podcast. This is actually the second time I've recorded today's podcast. I got pretty much done with it, and then when I went back to analyze the audio, there was a problem with my computer, and there was a bunch of pops and clicks that I didn't really hear until I put headphones on it. Bad enough that I couldn't let anybody listen to that, especially if you're listening to audio only. So it wasn't just the normal, you know, horn, scream, sirens, and whatever truck's been backing up for the past week straight with that stupid beep that you could probably hear. That stuff I feel like most people could tune out, but this was really bad. So here I go again to re-record all of it. Uh, hopefully I'll be able to upgrade my PC soon and stop having all of these crazy issues. But uh, if any of the sections seem a little bit rushed or skipped through, it's only because I've recorded the whole thing twice already. So my apologies, but... Uh, let's jump right into it again for me, and hopefully it'll still be a decent episode. First up, Displaced Gamers has just released another really awesome video, this time about the history of Luma in analog video signals. And I'm a very big fan of their channel. They're able to present things in a way that most people would be able to understand, uh, and especially topics that are universally complicated and hard to understand. So anybody interested in stuff like this, definitely check it out. I certainly enjoyed it. GameTech has just opened pre-orders on the Game Boy Advance Consoleizer, and I believe these are going to stay open for a while, so anybody who's been interested in, in getting one of these, now's definitely the time to pick one up. The price starts at $140, and there's different options, like if you need a 40-32 to 32 pin adapter, if you, one of your Game Boy Advances isn't compatible with it, um, and there's different cases, as well as different choices of colors for the case. So this really seems to be the perfect time to order one. You can get a great case for it. I love the consoleized look of the case. I know some people prefer just using the original case uh, in the way it was shown in the video that I posted, but I want one of these. And I believe there's some updates that have been done since the video I posted last year. Nothing huge. It's still the same awesome thing that I talked about. I think there's just a few extra tweaks. So anybody interested, definitely now's the time to pre-order. And if you're not quite sure what it could do, please check out the video because it doesn't just describe the HD or the GBA consoleizer. Um, it also goes into why you would want it, as well as alternatives if you want to still play an RGB or if you already have a full GameCube setup. SNES hacker Shiru GL has just released a video showing a 16 by 9 widescreen hack for Zelda: A Link to the Past. And this doesn't stretch the game, it allows you to utilize as much of the playing screen available to fill a 16 by 9 screen. So this is something that I've been talking about hoping for for a while now, and it looked like other people were already on it. Uh, it also, BU had commented on this and said that if uh, all it would really take is for more ROM hackers to create some of these patches, and we could get a lot more widescreen support through emulation for SNES games. So between this and the HD support for Mode 7 games, there's just so many cool options of opening up for emulation and SNES games. 
Dan, aka Citrus3000 PSI, has just posted a method of overclocking the Dreamcast that only requires removing three surface mount components and then adding two more in places right next to it. So overall, I think you get about a 10% gain in speed overclocking from 33.333 megahertz to 36.7. And also, it's the type of overclock where the most games wouldn't run faster. You get things like uh, more frames per second, you know, less slowdown, stuff like that. So while I'd certainly love to do uh, heat tests in a scenario like this, it, uh, it seems like with some more verification, this could be a pretty easy way to get better performance out of a Dreamcast. There's been other mods in the past that can go up to 20% overclocking, or I think a bit more, but those were more complicated, and with any kind of overclocking or any electronics, the hotter the components run, the, you know, the shorter the lifespan would be. But it's completely reasonable to think that with the right kind of cooling and the right type of mod that you could overclock and not really affect the lifespan of your console in any realistic way at all. So I'm certainly interested to see how it looks um, and how the games would work. Sega just announced more games that are going to be available for the Genesis Classic console. And it looks like Mega Man The Wily Wars is going to be one of them, which in my opinion is a really fun game that's never been globally available before, at least officially. So more and more this thing's shaping up to be a very cool console, and with M2 uh, designing it and all the great games that are going to be available on it, this could possibly turn out to be the best of the classic consoles. I always try to reserve judgment until I get one in my hands and I'm actually able to try it, but I can't help but get excited for this one now. Star Fox Zero for the Wii U is now available for $5 at 5 Below. Um, and while there's certainly mixed reviews of the game, any chance that you're able to pick up official Nintendo uh, games for $5 brand new, uh, it seems like it'd be worth checking out. So I, while I still haven't played Star Fox Zero, and I, I really did want to regardless of the reviews, maybe now's my excuse because for 5 bucks you kind of just might as well buy it if you have a Wii U already. A new overhead puzzle game called Soko Bananas has just made its goal on Kickstarter, um, and it'll be available for $47 for the cartridge or $5 for the ROM only. There's also a demo ROM available, which at the moment is only working with the Messin emulator. It doesn't seem to be working with the EverDrive N8, but I'd still think it's worth giving a try. Maybe use one of the beta firmwares with the custom mappers, or try on an analog NT-mini, or I guess even the power pack and see. But either way, this is exactly what I really like to see in retro releases of games. Um, collectors have the opportunity to purchase the game itself. People like myself that, while I would love a big collection, I don't have room for it, so now I get to still support the developer officially by spending $5 on just the ROM. And of course, they provide a demo first, so you can make sure it's the type of game you'd want to buy. So uh, big shout out to them. It seems like uh, a, great, uh, a great scenario for people that like to buy new old games. And check it out and see if it's for you. Another NES game has also just made its Kickstarter goal called Nescape by Con Games, which is kind of another game that's sort of like a modern puzzler like The Room. And this one's pretty interesting because the full $80 package will come with a mouse adapter that allows you to use a SNES mouse, including the new Hyperkin one, on this NES game. Uh, which is kind of an interesting thing, because I think a bunch of old NES games probably would have benefited from mouse support. Uh, and I don't, I don't think this will make them compatible. Just saying, it's, it's pretty neat to see a NES game with mouse support. 
And this game will also be a, a, a compatible and working with original hardware, but not the Retron 5. Uh, but any kind of good quality original NES, such as the top loader and front loader, as well as the retro USB AVS and the analog NT should all work perfect with it. So it's uh, certainly a good week for people that like new NES games. Cosmic Katamari has just released the design for a 3D printed case for the INL Retro Dumper Programmer. I believe there's going to be an official case released at some point, but Cosmic Katamari just wanted options out there for people that want to protect it now. Because as with any exposed PCB, there's always the chance you can have a short or something. Um, and for anybody not familiar, the INL Retro Dumper Programmer, uh, not really the smoothest name to flow off the tongue, but it's a device that allows you to dump or program uh, Famicom, Nintendo, Master System, Super Famicom, Super Nintendo, Genesis, and Mega Drive, Game Boy, Game Boy Color, and Game Boy Advance games. I might have even missed one, but it's certainly a device that could really handle... I mean, a, a giant amount of retro games. I think possibly even N64 as well, but it's a, a pretty impressive piece of hardware for anybody that's looking for pro, uh, programming and dumping of original games, and definitely worth checking out. And now you have the option for a 3D printed case if you want one. 8-Bit Doe has just released do-it-yourself Bluetooth kits for both PlayStation 1 and PS1 Classic controllers. And much like their other do-it-yourself kits, you basically just swap the guts and turn it into a Bluetooth controller. Um, which is great if you're looking to play games that were designed for Bluetooth and you like the feel of a PS1 controller. They don't have retro receivers, at least I don't think, for PS1 and PS2 yet. But in my opinion, it's probably for the best anyway, because whenever I've tested Bluetooth controllers on retro consoles, it does seem to add enough latency to be noticeable. Um, maybe not in all cases all the time, but combining that with the latency of a flat screen TV, I personally like to keep it all wired, or I like to use things like the Joys from Crix, which is known to have a very minimal amount of latency. But either way, if you're looking for a Bluetooth controller in the shape of a PlayStation controller, this might be a great way to accomplish that. John Hancock has just demoed a new prototype controller from Hyperkin that's both a paddle controller and a joystick for the Atari 2600, and of course the Retron 77. I think he had mixed, uh, mixed feelings on it, but it is still a prototype, so there's certainly room for improvement. Uh, and from my personal opinion, the games that require alternate controllers, so not the stick, but the paddle and driving controllers and any of the weird stuff like that, those were always my favorite experiences on 2600 games. Because I'm uh, not quite old enough to have grown up with it. I grew up in the NES era. So whenever I went back to play those, it was always really awesome, even today, to experience games with a different type of controller and uh, a different feel to it. So hopefully they'll get this right, because uh, that's certainly one of the reasons that I would revisit any 2600 game now. And just as a reminder, the uh, Retron 77, the new community software build for that, is pretty easy to load on, and it's something that gives you a pretty darn good experience when you consider at least how much it would cost to get a 2600 on a flat screen TV today in, you know, without adding latency. So even if um, you did an S-Video mod and used the RetroTank, you're still overall spending more money than just on the retro, Retron 77. So it's certainly something to consider. I know a lot of hardcore 2600 fans still hate that thing, but you know you get what you pay for. If you want the best RGB mod, your 2600, now and you know put it through a scaler if you want it on a flat screen or just hook it up direct to an RGB monitor, 
but that's going to cost a lot and be a lot more effort. So at least now there's solutions for everybody and hopefully at some point a new type of controller that'll enhance that experience as well. Aiden Lawrence has released his Mega MIDI Synthesizer Sound Module, which is essentially the audio chips from an original Sega Genesis in a MIDI module that plugs into either the USB or MIDI ports of your computer. So that means that you could program music and have it come out sounding exactly as if it was through a Sega Genesis, just with this one little module. And on a personal note, this is something I've been wanting to do for years now, and I'm really hoping to find a few minutes of time here and there to start working on it. But I'm also trying to drag Renee from DB Electronics in it as well, because uh, for those who don't know, he's actually a phenomenal guitarist, better than me, and, um, and knows how to program stuff like this. So uh, maybe politely tweet at Renee if you'd like to see a short collaboration between us with some music I've written moved over to tab and then switched over to MIDI so we could use something like this to uh, have a, a real Sega Genesis song. Um, but either way, I just, I get excited about, I get excited about a lot of stuff, but this combines some of my favorite things in life. Technology, music, retro gaming. I mean, what's not to love about this if you like any of those? So even if you're slightly interested in any of those subjects, check out Vanessa's post because this thing seems pretty cool. Eon was offering a 20% discount on their Mark II adapter. That's the dual output plug and play HDMI and analog adapter designed by Citrus 3000 PSI for the GameCube. However, it's already sold out. So uh, maybe if you're really interested in getting one of these and we're looking for the discount, uh, check out the link anyway and maybe they got back in stock. But I definitely owe everybody an apology for this because uh, those people who check out the site daily or subscribe to the RSS feed might have gotten this in real time. But I was away the day that Vanessa posted this and didn't see it and forgot to retweet it. So I've been trying to work on moving me over to personal accounts on Twitter and Instagram and all that stuff and making the retro RGB account something official where uh, you know it'll retweet every, every post that goes out and all that. And hopefully I can get that done soon. I just, uh, there's a lot on my plate and I'm trying to work hard to get it all done. Um, so sorry about that. I, I really wish there was a way that I already had something out there so that anybody wanting to be kept in the loop immediately could subscribe. Uh, but if these things are important to you and you already use an RSS feed reader, please just add retro RGB to it because that'll solve the problem right there. And I promise I'll work on getting my personal accounts moved over soon enough. So anybody that wants instant notification of this stuff can just uh, follow a, a specific account and know that if you turn on notifications, it's not going to be me posting pictures at a food fair. It'll be, <laughs> you know, it'll be actual stuff directly related to the website. A new controller adapter board was just released to GitHub. The USB to classic input board takes things like a PlayStation 4, Xbox 360, or even some PS3 controllers and any other USB device, I believe, and converts it to many different classic consoles, including ones that aren't often supported, like TurboGrafx-16 and the 3DO. Uh, suspiciously, there's no CDI support in there as well, so wrestling with gaming would be pretty upset, but... Either way, it seems like a pretty cool device for people that want to use one controller across all of their retro consoles, which is a question that I get very often, by the way. Um, sometimes it's from professional gamers that just get used to one controller and want to use that on everything, and other times it's just ease of setup to have one thing wired into different controllers, but either way, it looks like an awesome project, and I'm just really curious to see how much latency is added, because... 
for stuff like this, latency to me is more important than ease of use. Now that's not everybody. People will disagree with me. Different people's scenarios will be different. Uh, but I would certainly at least like to know some calculated uh, response times for this to see how much latency it adds to the controller input. So anybody familiar with the project or familiar with stuff like this, maybe take a look and let everybody know. My Life in Gaming have finally released their documentary on the developer's M2, and it was really worth the wait. I really enjoyed the whole story, and I love the dedication and uh, the levels of detail that this team goes into. I don't want to have any spoilers. I don't want to talk too much about it because I just want everybody to go watch it who's interested. But the one thing I'll say that, uh, that made me smile a lot was how much they hate input latency and display latency and how, how far they will go to try and fix that. It is so wonderful to hear developers talking about that in a way that affects every one of us retro gamers. Um, and hearing some of the things that they do to try to get around that and, and try to fix it makes me really happy. It also makes me really excited uh, even more for the Genesis Classic console and makes me want to revisit some of their 3DS ports because I never felt like any of those had latency. I just didn't spend too much time with those because I really do prefer a big TV experience over handheld. Just my preference. I'm not talking shit or anything, but either way, uh, give it a watch. It seems like a really great team of developers. My Life in Gaming did a great job, and hopefully we could all have a smile together when they talk about input latency and how they're trying to help that for their ports to modern consoles. Voltar has just released an updated version of his SNES RGB mod board. Uh, I gotta start out by saying though, if you already have a Voltar board installed or one of the new boardy boards, uh, do not swap it out for this one. Uh, this is really designed for ease of installation. Um, Voltar was able to notch it out around where the long legs of the capacitor stick through, so you don't have to worry about trimming those anymore, it just fits nicely right around it. And he also implemented uh, a different way to process sync so it doesn't matter what your cable has in it, which is kind of interesting. And, uh, you know, I see where he's going with this, and I, I certainly appreciate the addition. I'm still going to always tell everybody to use properly made cables and to mod your console in a way where, uh, you know, where it always outputs the same as stock. I think the only exception would be something like this mod where it doesn't really matter because you could plug any cable into it. But I just think it's important that we don't just think of our setups. We think of where these consoles are going to go whenever we're done with them because it's very easy to say, yeah, yeah, just use the cable that I marked SNES. I custom made it. And then next thing you know, it ends up in somebody else's hands without that cable or they don't know to use that specific cable. So um, awesome that Voltar's approached that from a point of view of it doesn't matter anymore. So that's pretty cool. Um, also, he has finally released the IFU RGB boards, which were announced a while back that go into the, IF, the interface unit for the PC engines. So if you use a PC engine and a CD-ROM drive with the IFU unit, you could RGB mod that instead of the consoles. So all of the links are available right there, or you could just go to voltar.com. And uh, always happy to see new products from, from trusted modders out there that, uh, that make good stuff. There's a, there's a long and growing list of people that make some great products. Uh, I think we could all agree Voltar is certainly on that list. The brand new Sega Genesis game, The Curse of Ilmore Bay, is up on Kickstarter and already funded. The action platformer game can be purchased for $20 for just the ROM file or a complete inbox cartridge for $60. 
And there's other tiers um, all the way up to $1,750, $1,750 that allow you to become a playable character in the game, which is awesome. I think I'd like to do that at some point in my life. Probably, if nothing else, be a bad guy that people get to shoot at. <laughs> but uh, it seems like a very cool game, and the uh, a demo of it is available for people that want to try, which, once again, I think is so important because... Uh, if it's a game that people like, I think that they would be way more inclined to purchase it if they're able to try it first and say, uh, yeah, this is definitely something I want to play. Can't wait for the real thing to come out. So anyone, anyone interested in a new Genesis game, definitely check out Race Post. And speaking of new Genesis games, there's more footage being released of the game Lethal Wedding, as well as an announcement that it will have co-op play. Uh, no price or official release date has been announced yet, but this is another game that's certainly looking to shape up to be a pretty cool Genesis game. The previously announced Game Boy Color backlit screens from Midwest Embedded are now available for pre-order. Um, I guess there's now three kits for Game Boy Color backlights, uh, and I'd really like to see all of them side by side to see if there's a difference or an advantage to any of them, but they all seem to look good, so if the Midwest Embedded one is the one you were looking to buy, now you could pre-order it. And speaking of Game Boy Color backlight kits, it looks like the 8-bit guy has just posted a video showing how his installation of one of these kits went, and he even compared it to, like, uh, the original, to the GB Boy Color knockoff, and to a backlit Game Boy Pocket. So it seems to be just as easy to install as everybody had said, and the quality also seems to be awesome. So if you're interested to see... Uh, what installing one of these might be like, check out the video, and hopefully someday I could have three of the, all three of the new ones side by side and really check out how each of them differ for each other, if at all. GameTech has recently started selling a multi-cart for the Bally Astrocade console. Um, that's an older console in the late 70s era that was kind of around the Atari 2600 time. I had to look that one up myself. I'd forgotten which one that was. Uh, but this $100 cart will allow you to play the full game library as well as some homebrews and some unreleased stuff via a dip switch. So anybody who hasn't ever used a dip switch multi, you have a chart that you reference with a list of games. Next to the game there's a number and then you just set the dip switch settings in order to access that exact game. So it's a pretty cool way to experience the game library. And for anybody listening that uh, my nomenclature of these things it drives you crazy, just to be clear... Um, I always call things that have a set amount of games on them that cannot be added or removed multi-carts. Because over the years, you've heard of things like the 161 and 1 multi or the Vectrix multi and, and all of those. Whereas any time that you're able to take some kind of rewritable memory, dump your game ROMs on that and play it, I call that a ROM cart. Um, I guess... I could call it an SD multi, but not all of them use SD cards. You know, you have the Power Pack, which is Compact Flash. And of course, uh, you know, I can't call them a flash cart because not all of them use flash memory. So I just, uh, I think it's an easier and better term when I just call it a ROM cart. Um, and if it really upsets you that much, maybe you should go play Mario on your 8-bit Do controller. <laughs> Kidding, of course. But yeah, that's just to be clear, that's how I call these things because it seems to be an easier way to follow it. Uh, and an easier way to differentiate which is which. I just posted a video that's a continuation of my work with video capture that shows you how to take a Datapath Vision capture card and one of the SCART to DVI boards that's now available from Insurrection Industries and have a 1080p stream or capture without using an upscaler. 
So while the title is a little bit clickbaity, it's a 100% accurate description of what the video is about. And also in the video, I show a dedicated streaming and capture machine that I had built for this. Um, if you'd like to do so yourself, including everything I have in that video, it's going to be less than 500, which is about what you'd spend on a capture card and a frame meister. So if you think of it that way, you might actually be able to get a slightly better solution depending on what your needs are. To be honest though, I have a feeling most people that might be into this might watch this video and say, I already have everything I need, and I don't need a dedicated PC, I could just use my current PC. And if that's the case, for under 200 bucks, that means you have a full capture solution that does HDMI and retro, and when you plug your retro SCART cables into it, or I guess even component as well, you really would be able to go to 1080p without using a scaler. And depending on, your, uh, on what cables you use and what console you use, it could potentially look better. Now, this is obviously a more advanced way of capture. You have to worry about stuff like oversampling and all that. But this video was really just designed to be an overview to kind of show you what it's like. Uh, and I skipped through a lot of this stuff, unlike the last video where I kind of explained every step that I went through. So I will be following this up with some more pages on the website. It'll probably take me a week or two to get them up, uh, especially the oversampling stuff, because I want to make sure I really get that right. I just want to make sure to get this information out to people, uh, because with devices like the SCART to DVI, um, the component to DVI, which is almost done, and uh, this will probably be out within a few months, and then any of the follow-ups, um, you're able to get direct one-to-one -one captures of this, in excellent quality, you're able to stream uh, in high def if you want, and you're able to do so without extra expensive equipment. So uh, I, I obviously have been standing by projects like this, and I'm really happy to promote products like this too, because um, I could confidently say that I love them and not have to worry, because I'm not making any money off of them. <laughs> I'm just doing a lot of the research and development, uh, along with a lot of other people that have joined onto the team making these things, which is always very much appreciated. So if you're into capture or streaming at all, definitely check this one out, as well as the video capture section in that other video. Um, and if you see this, and you know, there's a few mistakes in there that I'll, I'll make sure to clear up in the upcoming pages of the website. Uh, and there's a few terms that I haven't gone into detail yet, but I'll stay on the, all of this stuff. And I just really want to spread the word to more people that you can get amazing captures, amazing streams, um, and really be able to do so with cheap equipment and potentially have it even look better. So, you know, uh, the only time I've seen streams that are that come close to this are people that are experts at using the OSSC and being able to tweak it, which is absolutely great if, uh, you know, if that's something you're already an expert in. But if you're just kind of starting out on this stuff, this might even be a better option just overall. I don't know, or not, depending on your setup. But I hope, uh, I hope you, everybody who's interested watches the video and sees if this is something that might be for them. Uh, or, of course, even a variation of it for them. But uh, hopefully you enjoy it, and uh, I'll, I'll, without a doubt, be following up with more videos like that as well. Well, I hope this week's podcast turned out all right. Uh, I was certainly pretty frustrated when I got more than halfway through and realized that I had to start over, and the construction that's been outside my window for the past couple of days has been driving me even crazier. So hopefully I still pulled it off and uh, stayed positive, because I still have the same amount of love for this stuff that I always do. I just uh, tend to love it a little more when I don't have a beeping echoing throughout my brain the whole time I'm trying to record. 
But uh, either way, thank you to all of you for putting up with it. Um, and, of course, thanks to everybody who watches, listens, and comments. I'm always so impressed at how, how much nicer the comment section is on these videos than on so many more across the Internet. So thank you for that. And, of course, I have to thank all of my supporters because without you, these videos would never happen. So thank you so much, and I'll see everybody next week.